Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode of Financial Crime Matters, I talk with Sam Cooper, National Online Investigative Journalist for Canada's Global News. Sam and I talk about the stories that he broke while a reporter at the Vancouver Sun and how Vancouver real estate was being used as a major money laundering vehicle. Sam has spoken at our AKM's Toronto conference, and it was a pleasure to catch up with him as he finishes a book on what has come to be known as the BC model of money laundering. Sam talks about how he got the story and his ongoing reporting on political corruption, organized crime, and financial crime, and national and security and intelligence issues for Global News from Ottawa. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and will subscribe to the series either on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Here we go. The last time we saw each other was the fall of 2017 at a Toronto ACAMS conference. At that time, I was right in the thick of breaking a number of stories. We even talked about a threat I got late at night from a person who claimed to be representing a casino company before I was about to speak at your conference. I've been looking at the strange and mysterious ways that money found its way into Vancouver real estate for years, since about 2009. And it was very apparent to even the average person that a great deal of this money was coming from mainland China. And yet, China has export controls of $50,000 U.S. per year on its citizens. The task at hand was to find out how this money was getting into Vancouver real estate and boosting that market so much when there are controls in China and controls in Canada that are supposed to block it. How did you get started on this story? If I look all the way back to the U.S. financial crisis, and that was really about mortgage frauds and how it was leveraged up through Wall Street financial wizardry. Borrowers that really couldn't support their home purchases were getting these loans. What was going on in Vancouver obviously wasn't the same thing. The story just wasn't the same about the ninja borrowers, no income, no job. Something different was going on. I was a young family man at the time facing a lot of stress and frustration, as many were, that we couldn't afford homes. So I was sort of doubly motivated to look into this. Running into the 2010 Olympics, it just became very clear that Vancouver was being marketed as a world jewel place to buy a home, and much of the marketing was going offshore. I dug further and further. Within the city, there's no secret. Most of the buyers are these extremely wealthy persons from mainland China. Many don't end up living in Vancouver. They might visit, but the realtors were very clear about who the big buyers were, almost the only buyer of properties selling for over a million. I started to unwind it, and it became clear after 2013 that there was definitely an element of criminality. And the first appearance of that was corruption suspects that had been in China's government and had come to North America, especially Vancouver, with their ill-gotten gains. This leads to a big question about why properties were being sold to people that had corruption charges standing against them. How did this all work? What was the typology? Shell companies, lack of beneficial ownership information? The typology was regulatory capture and willful blindness. At a high level, how it was working was that the regulator, this would be the real estate boards, the law societies, and who was behind it. There was no vetting of who the actual beneficial owners were. 
it became clear by 2016 that about half of the luxury properties in Vancouver were owned through opaque structures, whether they be buyer of a $28 million home claiming to be a student. We both know that a student can't afford a home of that cost. Behind them was someone else, whether it be a gangster or an extremely wealthy government official, maybe even just a successful business person that isn't claiming all of their tax from worldwide income. After 2015, the major players in real estate were involved in crowdfunding, which was a huge concept in China where a lot of different buyers pool their assets together and someone steps up for the purchase. The obvious problem there is who are all of the people involved in that purchase? They may be people that want to hide their interest. After doing a speech for UBC Law School in 2015, I was approached by various people that said one of the big crowdfunders I had written about was connected to the casinos. That really led me to back my way into the casino money laundering story and see how connected it was to the Vancouver real estate development story. Then it became clear that there was this underground banking model that really had been around in Vancouver for decades and in China for hundreds of years. Money crossing borders without really crossing borders. Criminal banks in various different countries depositing a credit in the country you live traveling to another country and getting the payout with the value transferred on in-secret ledgers to make it simple. During this time, real estate agents would have had reporting responsibilities with regard to suspicious activity, right, under the Proceeds of Crime and Money Laundering Act. Absolutely. And in 2015, 2016, I started to do reports showing that compliance was basically non-existent in Vancouver. Some people tell me about driving in countries like Brazil. If you see a red light, it's optional. It doesn't mean you have to stop. That's how realtors were looking at their reporting requirements for FinTrack. And in fairness to them, some of them had the argument that those of us that really care about following rules file so much paper, and we have never had FinTrack come back with a case. And there's so much money laundering going on. We're doing all this reporting. Why should we keep doing it if FinTrack isn't minding the hen house? There were lots of problems, but many people weren't reporting. I saw that, and I remember on one of my big early stories that traced the organized crime connections to purchases of homes in Vancouver, that David Eby, who was the housing critic for the NDP at the time, said that the story shocked him, but pointed to what he believed were systemic issues around non-compliance in reporting the FinTrack for realtors. What's happening with the gambling industry? They're supposed to be watchdogs. Explain how these illicit funds were coming into the casinos and ending up also in real estate. This is the Macau model of money laundering. Again, it traces back to in China, you're not allowed to bring out more than $50,000 per year. However, if you're a wealthy person or an official, you can go to Macau and where your source of wealth is, China, you make a deposit to an underground banker, let's just say $500,000, got a credit with these banks, which are backed by triads. When you arrive in Macau, you're paid out $500,000 in chips. You can do your gambling or just take your chips and go to another underground banker who will provide you a deposit slip to get your money into a Hong Kong bank, and then you can buy something pretty much anywhere in the world. This is what was happening in Vancouver. I found out that this had been happening really since the early to mid-90s when casinos started to take off in Vancouver. 
And the growth of the industry really reflected that clientele in Macau, which was mostly connected to whale gamblers from mainland China. What we found when I really broke open the story in 2017 was that very prolific casino loan sharks that had been connected to mainland China cartels for decades in Vancouver and had worked their way up into being very wealthy gangsters because they were facilitating so much money coming into Vancouver. They were involved in an underground bank based in Richmond. The Richmond gangsters would fly to Macau, do their recruiting of whales, say, come meet me in Vancouver. When you land in Richmond, here's my WeChat text number. Flip me a text, show up at the parking lot outside one of these very popular casinos, Richmond, Burnaby, New Westminster, or Vancouver, and you're going to get a duffel bag with $500,000. That won't get you too far if the people in the casinos are doing their job to vet suspicious cash. But what I found was that they were not. Whale gamblers were able to walk in with $1.3 million in one single cash transaction was the largest amount ever done, but that's the model. You came in, you gambled, your money was paid back in China. So you got your chips out in Vancouver after making that deal with the Richmond gangster, and when you're done, you pay back to a bank account in China. The added wrinkle here is, in many cases, that bank account was funding drug production in China. The casinos in BC are overseen by provincial authorities, right? In theory, they should be catching this. This money isn't just being used for gambling. This is money that is also figures in the trafficking of drug proceeds. Police in BC have known since the early 90s that much of the money coming into BC casinos was connected to the opioid industry, the heroin industry especially. They knew that it was driving addiction and death. They knew that the money was getting laundered. But in simple terms, how it works is a loan shark that goes into the casino, they call them human ATMs. These are just people that they might have had man purses with chips or 50,000 walking into the casinos. Whenever the whale runs out of money at the table, it used to be inside the casino. It was so brazen that they could re-up them inside. The loan shark's job is to go to the criminal, let's just say the criminal banker who has a warehouse stacked with cash from drug sales, drug import, or prostitution. That money has to be washed. So the loan shark, let's just call them the runner, takes the delivery, goes to the casino. It's gambled by the whale. This is all written down in little notebooks. If the whale doesn't pay back, he's going to get a visit from a guy with a knife, a tire iron, or a gun. Maybe his children will get kidnapped. The payback happens in checks, money orders, there's a security agreement on your home, on your Mercedes. That is how the cash from the hands of the loan shark is laundered at the first step. Through the whale gambler, whether they win or lose, they have the promissory note saying they have to pay the loan shark back. Once the cash is handed to the whale, it doesn't really matter. He has to pay back. And how do we know this? The very top loan shark in BC at the time when police did a bust on his home, they found something like $200,000 in checks written out to him from various loan sharking victims. If you're paying someone with a check, it's quite easy for that gangster to bank the money. Once it's banked, it could go pretty well anywhere in the world. That's just one path. In, in some cases, if that gambler has bad luck and can't pay you back, the loan shark has a security on their home in Vancouver. That's not only a security, it could be a form of money laundering. The gangster just takes the home, that value is transferred. At a very lower level, that's how the money laundering occurs from the casinos into the real estate. 
From 216 on, did things start to change? What was the political effect of all this corrupt money? My reporting has shown that it was the government in power from the early 2000s to early 2017, which really took the hit in turning a blind eye to this dirty cash coming into the casinos. And the evidence is very clear that regulators warned them, investigators warned the government of the day that this was believed to be large-scale money laundering. But I showed that it wasn't just that D.C. liberal government. It was the NDP of the late 90s that opened the door to this Macau casino money laundering method, really. Gambling in D.C. used to be just a fair sideshow type of activity. They turned these casinos that could only take $5 bets into casinos with baccarat tables that could take $500 bets per hand. And that just got leveraged up year by year. I reported that we can't just look at one political party. But it becomes clear when I start breaking those stories in late 2017 that this Vancouver method is rampant. The new NDP government takes action following my report. Peter German, the former RCMP executive, does a review affirming that my reports of the Vancouver Sun essentially were accurate, despite a lot of pushback from the people that were benefiting in the casino industry and elsewhere. The German report established this money laundering was going on. We at Global News, where I joined in early 2018, didn't stop just because Peter German said there's something going on. We kept digging, as others did, showing the scale of the problem was much larger than the German report. Our last story was about a woman called Miriam Labine who had warned her bosses and the government in the late 90s that this Macau-style money laundering was going on. She even named the Big Circle Boys the transnational cartel that is responsible for so much death and misery and heroin trade, and nothing happened. So at that point, Cullen Commission was called, and it is already in a minimal way underway, and we expect to hear real evidence starting this fall. But there's been some changes in BC, right, in terms of reporting? Definitely. Yes, there was a crackdown where a large unsourced cash transactions, the duffel bags of cash could not come into the casino anymore. It was the laws where you had to bring a teller slip to verify how much cash you're bringing in. So the unsourced cash couldn't happen anymore. That was probably the biggest change. There were a number of other ones. Whether all of the changes promised have actually come to the floors of casinos, I think will be a subject for the inquiry. But the heat and the light from these stories appear to have chased the gangsters out of the BC casinos. And we at Global News have reported that expect when you slam down in BC, money laundering doesn't stop. It's much like flowing water. It goes elsewhere. And we showed that in 2018, suspicious transaction investigations and money laundering investigations spiked in Ontario, the site of a great casino expansion in 2017 and 2018. There needs to be a nationalization of these rules. Also, there's the realization that if you slam down on casinos, money laundering is a very high-tech business these days, so it'll go to other areas. Some concerns about the ability under the current laws for actually seizing assets and doing prosecutions based on money laundering charges. Absolutely. That's been another big revelation that Canada perceives itself as a country of law and order, but there has been little or no prosecutions. Part of that is just the difficulties around disclosure of evidence, the latitude in which evidence has to be provided to the defense side that people say resulted in the failure of the e-pirate investigation. 
biggest ever in Canada on casino money laundering that failed because of an evidence disclosure error. The police sources I would talk to say the people that were at the center of this transnational cartel that is especially active in Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, didn't face any consequences for their actions, even with all the heat and the light on the casinos and the reporting on the e-pirate investigation. Tell me a little bit about what you're working on now. As part of my current reporting being based in Ottawa, I get a little bit more involved in looking at the national security consequences of transnational money laundering. And it has become clear over the past year to the networks that I have been looking at, especially in Vancouver, are very similar to networks in Melbourne, Australia. There's evidence that the casino money launderers and the organized criminals that are very connected to mainland China have some connection in some cases to what looks like influence operations connected to China's government. As wild as that sounds, the evidence has just become more and more clear over the past year in Australia and Canada especially. That's something that I'm looking at, those questions around what happens when you've got this cash machine that is unregulated in a city. Could it be possible that cash can be used to go to political donations? Could it be possible that it could fund weapons trafficking with connections to other countries? Those are issues that I'm looking at. A recent report found a connection between mainland China influence operation that's very vast, that touches at least in some cases on some of these alleged casino money laundering suspects. I've seen that in Canada, and it's been reported in Australia. That's a new area that I'm looking into, and for me, it has just confirmed the importance of the work because it was so unrecognized in Canada for a long time that politics in another country can be connected to criminal networks, and this is a national security threat. Congratulations to you for what you've accomplished so far. Keep up the good work. Thank you for doing this, and I'd advise everybody to be on the lookout for your book. The project is underway, and you'll be one of the first to know. It's great talking to you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Sam Cooper of Global News. I hope you liked what you heard, and will subscribe on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud so that you'll get an alert with each new podcast. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.